Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. Good morning, everybody. How are y'all doing? Good. I'm glad there are some people still straggling in, because if you didn't realize, I was a little late. So I forgot I had to check out of my hotel room before I came here. Oh, look, there it is. It works magically. Um, if y'all didn't meet me in my brief on stage thing last night. Let me reintroduce myself. My name is Justin. Um, I am a former missionary to China, a practicing business lawyer, and now somebody who also speaks and writes on habits. And so to start today, I want to tell you how all that happened and how I started from uh, being a missionary and became a corporate lawyer. Um, It started like this. About eight years ago, I am a missionary in Shanghai, China. Um, Charming little city of 25 million people. Some of you may have heard of it. And I am walking, I've been there for about five years almost at this point. And I'm walking down the densest urban center of Shanghai, which is a little bit of a mix of Times Square, New York City, meets Las Vegas lights, meets everybody's Chinese instead of American. Um, It's it's a weird cosmopolitan place. And um, I've been there many times before, but I had never seen this before. Here's what I saw. I'm walking down the road, and in the middle, I see an older lady stooped kind of by poverty and age, and she's unfurling a scroll, okay? And on the scroll, I come up, and I start to read it, and I I read Chinese slowly. I do read it, but really slowly. So it takes me about 60 seconds just to get through the first two lines, and already in that 60 seconds, crowds of hundreds of people are pressing up around me, and I already hear police sirens, because this is what the first two lines say. The judicial system in China is broken. The people in the countryside are being oppressed. That's as far as I get, because by that time, a cop has already shoved his way to the front of the crowd. And remember, I'm like right up next to the lady, because I'm coming right as she's unfurling her skull. So I'm overhearing this exchange with them right in front of me. And the cop looks at her and says, you know you can't do this. And she looks back at him defiantly and says, but you know this is true. And then he looks back at her defiantly and says, and you know what's going to happen now. And so in the middle of this incredible exchange, I, your quintessential American, decide to interrupt. (laughs) So there there were really two important rules to my missionary vocation in China. One was share the gospel with Chinese students. Two was whatever you do, do not get involved in political protesting. So here I am, yours truly, breaking the cardinal rule. And I tell the police officer, hey, excuse me, just a second here. Um, I just saw a thief if you would like to arrest one. And I was not kidding, because right before I walked up to this woman, um, I had passed, which is totally normal on this, on this road in Shanghai, um, a black market thief who opened his jacket, and there was a laptop-sized pocket sewn in the jacket. And he was like, hey, you want to buy a laptop for $10? like, $10 laptops aren't a thing. You know, this is, this is stolen. No. And uh, this was like, you know, 60 seconds before. So I tell the cop, would you like to arrest the actual thief? Like, I can point him out to you. And the cop just shakes his hand in my face like that, which is a technical Chinese gesture for shut up. And then the woman is put in a police van. It leaves, and the crowd disperses. And all of a sudden, it's over. And as I'm, like, just beginning to process what I saw, I'm walking away, and um, from behind me, I hear someone go, psst, hey. And I turn around, and it's this um, teenage boy, and he goes, hey, you want to buy some marijuana? (laughs) 
And I shake my hand in his face. <laughs> and as I'm, as I'm walking, I'm starting to feel the heaviness. Right? And I, I'm thinking about the five or six street side brothels that I'm going to pass on the way home. And I have this feeling of all these forces weighing down on us that created this moment. I'm thinking about the four things that I just saw. Um, of the four of them, stealing, dealing, prostituting, protesting. All four of these things are illegal in China. Okay? But three of them are fantastic ways to make money. One of them, the one thing that I would consider a virtuous act of love for neighbor, that's the one that will get you arrested immediately. And this moment changed the course of my life. It really did. Because it was in this moment that I saw up front and firsthand the world of work gone wrong. So what hit me in this moment was how much the world of institutions and systems, how much the world created by work actually in turn shaped people and their potential moral decisions and outcomes and who they were and what they could plausibly believe in or not. And my, in, in, in this moment began a kernel of what um, I would call my theory of change changing. Okay? Here's um, a little diagram to help you wade through those words. I had come to China under the assumption that the way you change the world is to change people's hearts and minds, and they in turn would give rise to new systems and institutions and ways of working and countries and economic policies, etc. And, and so that's what I was there doing, you know, trying to proclaim the gospel to them and change who they were so that they would change their country. What I found in this moment was something that seemed a little bit different. And it might just look like this. What I found in this moment was a world that, of people that were shaped by the institutions that they lived under, by the world of work gone wrong. And what I mean by this, for example, is the black marketer looked like a really nice guy. Uh, the teenage drug dealer, uh, I mean, he was a, a young, scared kid. The faces of the prostitutes in all these open brothels that you would pass every day in Shanghai looked like women with blank stares. They didn't look like people... Um, who were doing something as much as people who were dealing with what the world had done to them. There was a sense in this moment in China that nobody in China wanted it to be this way. But this is the way it was. How did it get there? Um, this was the product of a, of a world shaped by work. And I, I found my call in that moment. And it was within weeks, literally, that I started applying to law and business school because I just felt this deep personal yearning that if, if the world was so much shaped by work, I kind of wanted to be a missionary to that. I, I wanted to be a part of that. And um, so I started applying to law and business school. And I th- cause, because I thought, you know, if, if, if law and business shape um, policies and economic outcomes and moral plausibilities as much as I think they do, then I just I want in on that game. Um, and now, here I am, uh, I think it's like 2020, I guess it's nine years later, and I am both um, more nuanced in my view and more passionate. More nuanced because I've come to see, I think, through studying and working and thinking about this a lot, that it's a, a little bit more like this. It's a reflexive system between peoples who shape work and institutions and systems and the ways that that work and institutions and those systems work back on us. That might be the nuance. But the, the passion, though, is, is I am all the more convinced that I should be a missionary in my work 
Um, first, because I see all the more now up front how work really does shape God's creation. Work, what you will do, nine to five, your primary vocation that hopefully will make you money, is one of the main ways you will shape God's creation and love your neighbor. Or not. And this matters. And work is also one of the primary things that will be shaping you as you think about your spiritual formation, what you believe, who you are, how you want to raise a family and love your neighbor or not. How and where you work and what systems you work under will shape that far more than you expect. Which is to say, quite simply, work matters. It matters a lot. And we ignore this world of work and the way that it's missional and it shapes our spirituality and our love for neighbor at our own peril. But when we engage in it, we can engage in it as a real missionary. And so I want to unpack um, two parts of this for you this morning. And then I want to try to leave, ambitiously, I want to try to leave a good at least 15 minutes for Q&A. Um, what I'm going to try to unpack for you is first the biblical story of work. I just want to kind of ground some of what I'm telling you in Scripture rather than just my own experience um, so that you can trust it. And then secondly, I want to talk about uh, two kind of sides of more practically finding good work and doing it. I am a lawyer and a writer, and I, I get really practical when I talk about habits. If you want to come to my next seminar, I'm really practical. I'm going to try to be practical in these two points, but caveat, they're still a little bit theoretical. Um, but it'll, I'll try to get practical. So, number one, let's just dive into the biblical story of work here. If you read Genesis, the first thing that you're going to encounter in Genesis is, is you are going to find that work is capital G good. Okay? So, I, so just, just reflect on Genesis for a minute. You get to the opening act of the Bible, which is the opening act of all of human history. And what do you see? You see this Trinity, the Trinity come out on stage, and... the, the God, they, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are working up in a flurry to create this bizarre and material human world. God in, the, in Genesis is one part blue-collar worker, one part artist, one part inventor, tinkerer, entrepreneur, and he is working with this fascination and love to create this world that we live in. And he keeps saying this one word over and over, which is tav. Uh, tav is the Hebrew word for good that you read in the Bible. Now, the reason that I bring this up is not because I know Hebrew. I think tab is actually the only word I know in Hebrew. I bring it up because I want this word good, and you know, God created light, he called it good. He created X, he called it good. He created birds, he called it good. I want it to stand out to you because if you don't understand that God is caught up in his love of creation and matter and being, then you are missing fundamentally who God is and what he's doing in his own work. When God creates the shape of the pineapple, he loves it and he calls it good. When God creates the, the, the way that the photons interact with that was not planned. <laughs> That's amazing. Can I have that for that? <laughs> when, when God creates the photons that interact with the uh, environment to create the northern lights, he loves it and he calls it good. When he creates the helix of the DNA, he loves it. When he creates the, the dimples on the cheeks of a baby... He is caught up with his love of creation. All right, and if we don't get this, if we don't get that God really loves work and the creation that he made, then we're not going to understand all work because our work is all derived from God's work. All right? Think about this. Artists, farmers, inventors, they all develop creation just like God. 
It's, it's tough. Lawyers uh, like myself or accountants, we order the world just like God does. It's tough. Uh, teachers, moms, stay-at-home parents, families, they, they train hearts and form children in love or not. It's tough. Inventors, uh, entrepreneurs, investors, they create something out of nothing. They, they, they're fruitful. They multiply. This is all tough. All right, so work is capital G good. We need to understand that it flows out of God's work in Genesis. Um, point two that I want you to see about work in Genesis is that it is essentially an outward movement for what we could call the common good, okay? Here's what I mean by this. God, when he is creating the world in Genesis, is not doing something that he needs to be God. He is not dependent on his creation, right? We have all sorts of fancy, all sorts of fancy theological concepts and words, but you can put it in layman's term. He doesn't need creation, but creation needs him, okay? So he's not like a man in the woods trying to fashion a shelter to survive. He's, he's doing a generous act of hospitality for humans, and we should conceive of our own work in the same direction. Our work is outward. It is not, and we'll talk about this more in a second, not primarily for us to make money or create a sense of identity and help us feel good about ourselves. It is to serve the common good of our neighbor. It's common because it's outward and public, and it's good because it's tough. So just think, you know, when we come together and create an educational system that creates a safe place for students to learn and find all the wonder of the world and grow socially, that is just tough. It's really tough. When we come together and create schools who are concerned with running active shooter drills and where bullying is destroying the spirit of some children, or where the schools are so impoverished that they're actually falling apart, and there's violence and chaos. That is not tough. That is not the common good. And Christians should be thinking about, what are we creating in the world? Is it tough, and is it for the common good? The third thing that I want you to see in the Genesis story, and I love this one. This one's really important. I don't think we talk about it enough. Is that work is with God. All right. Here's what I mean by this. If you look at verse 19 and 20 um, in Genesis chapter 2, after God works out the rough scaffolding of creation, he says something amazing to Adam. He looks at Adam, and he invites him over to him and says, name the animals. It literally says, to see what he would name them. And whatever man called it, that was his name. So God actually does not finish creation. He invites Adam in next to him to work with God. We are made not just to work, but to work beside the God who loves us. Work is the place that God is, right? So I think of this um, story from my childhood. I, I have this memory of watching my dad and my uncle on the floor of our garage working on my dad's motorcycle. And I remember probably around the age of five just standing there thinking, man, I would really like to help with that. <laughs> I would really like to get in on what they are doing. And I remember when my dad asked me, hey, Justin, would you go over and grab that wrench? How exalted I felt to perform the menial task of carrying the wrench over to my dad because I just got invited in to the project. I was now with the boys. And and I think that that says something about the human spirit and what we actually long for when we long for good work. Yes, we long for meaning and influence, and I'm going to talk about that in a couple minutes. But one of the fundamental longings is we just want to work with a God who loves us. I wanted to work with my dad because... I loved him, and he loved me. And when we are invited to work, 
One of the most important things you've got to understand, whether it is a changing diaper or making an economic policy between the U.S. and China, we are doing it alongside a God who loves us and has called us to do it. That is not a means to an end, which is predicated on your success or failure. That's just an end. You're with him helping. I mean, think of if my dad had asked me to turn the wrench. What's he expecting? Me to fumble and mess it up. And then he's going to be right there saying, no, 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 this, this way. Do it this way. Um, work is with God, and that is really important. The last thing that I want to talk about in the biblical story of work is that work occurs in a story, and it is fallen, but it is being redeemed. And this is really important. So you guys are actually going through this whole story this weekend of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You've got to understand that work occurs in that story. I've, ta- I've been talking all about creation in these past three points, right? You, you just heard about the fall this morning, and and guess what? If you have a part-time job, or if you're a student studying right now, or if you've ever worked, you, you get the work has fallen. <laughs> it's hard. It's toilsome. It almost always goes wrong. It's almost impossible to meet your deadlines or to do what you want the way you wanted to do it. Work is the place where we lie to each other, cheat each other, steal from each other, gossip about each other, get fired. I mean, this is, work is hard. All right? I'm assuming that you know this, so I'm not going to step on this point really hard. What I want you to see is that the primary fact of work is not that it's fallen. The primary fact of work in the biblical story is that it is being redeemed unto restoration. And we see this in the person of Jesus when he comes to the world to work. All right, think about this. When Jesus comes to work in the world, all this curse of work begins to come undone. All right, when Jesus comes to work in the world, um, dying girls who the medical profession has given over to death, get up and have breakfast with their families. When Jesus comes to the work in the world, lame beggars who cannot work get up, carry their mats, and go back to work. When Jesus comes to work, tax collectors who have cheated the poor give their money back two or three times over. When Jesus comes to work, a logistically challenged wedding becomes a wine-soaked celebration. In all of these things, Jesus is undoing the curse His work is for the good of people and for the good of our work. And so when we see in um, Colossians, where all things on heaven and earth are being reconciled to him, this means that in Jesus and in Jesus alone, the whole story of our work is not falling apart, actually. It is coming together so that when we see in Revelation this city, we start in the garden, go into a city, this city a mile high and a mile wide, which, by the way, anybody studying engineering, architecture, urban planning, this is a feat. Right? This is an amazing city, a beehive of human activity and work. It is being redeemed and restored. And this story of work is good news for us. Two ways, before I move on from the biblical story, I just want to apply this in two ways. Um, when you get to the world of work, you are going to encounter at least two great struggles for work. And I want you to remember this biblical story and how it helps you. Okay, The first struggle you're going to encounter... Um, and you, you, you already see this in, in your studies, but you're going to see it even more as you get into a work where your, your living is predicated on it, is you're going to have a too high a view of work. It is going, you're going to see work and you're going to see other people view work as a place where you need to find your identity. And I want to tell you that the, the biblical story of work is good news for that curse. Why? Because you do not need to approve who you are through your work. You have already been made a son or a daughter of the king. You are free to fail, to test, to try, to iterate, to stumble, because you are not working to earn your love. 
You're free from all that. You are working because you're with God. It is for your neighbor. There's a story that it's being redeemed. This is why you can become a millionaire entrepreneur and either lose it all or give it all away, and that's fine because it doesn't own you. You're just serving. You're working. Or this is how you can be a plumber in a small town and know that you're not meaningless because you're working with the one who loves you. You, like God, are ordering and fixing little parts of creation. That's good. And on that subject of meaninglessness, this is going to be the second great struggle that you're going to encounter. Um, As you work, and especially as you become a parent, which, by the way, everything I say about work, by the way, is is true for a stay-at-home parent or a parent who also works. I'm I'm speaking from hard-won experience as a father of four young boys right now. The temptation when you get into your accounting job and all you're doing is copying data from spreadsheets and fixing little annoying looped formulas Or when you're a young lawyer, like I've been, and you're just reviewing contracts ad nauseum. Or when you're a plumber or when you're a stay-at-home mom for the first time and you're changing diapers day in and day out and you get to the point, you're all going to come to this point where you're like, what is this for? What if I, and and this is kind of scary, you think, what have I gotten myself into? Because your whole life, you've lived with this blue sky expanse of like, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to become? How am I going to change the world? And whether you do things that we call great or things that we call menial, every single person is going to finally look at what they're actually doing day to day and be like, oh no, (laughs) i got to do this for the rest of my life. And the, the story of work in Genesis through Revelation is good news for you because you can know no matter how many hours you spend in those spreadsheets or how many diapers or how much baby food you're wiping off the floor or no matter how many fights you have to solve between your coworkers who look a lot more like your children than you thought, It is not lost. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it is toilsome. But the Lord is redeeming the world such that all the good work that you do, all that faithful love and effort that you put out, it will find its place in the new Jerusalem. And that is great news. It is not meaningless. It has an end. And this should give us really, really great hope for our work. All right, so that is the story of work. I want to to do one more thing before I open a Q&A. And I want to talk about a little bit about practically finding and thinking about good work. And I want to talk about two, um, two, two sort of balancing acts of finding good work. Because I think these are the, two of the things that we struggle with sort of existentially as we go on to start working. One is this balancing act of calling. And two is a balancing act of what I would call influence. Okay, And just briefly, it's the idea of Am I called outward to work on something, or do do I need to find something that fits me? What's what's the balancing act there? And the second one is, how am I going to influence the world, slash, how is the world going to influence me? Both of these things are going to be real, live problems that you encounter. And so let me talk about them really quick. When I left um, my fourth year of college, I was debating between two vocations. One, as you know, what happened, going to be a missionary in China. Two, which didn't happen, was touring with my punk rock emo band. Um, And this was a very hard decision for me because I was convinced of this idea of going to to shape the world and being a missionary in China. It just seemed like a great idea. I was growing in my faith a lot. It seemed like, you know, good stuff. But the idea of touring with my punk rock emo band, I really liked the way that made me feel about myself. I really liked the idea of, of who I would be as a drummer in a band. Um, you know, we had a shot. It was a long shot. We wouldn't have made it. 
But um, there was this tension that I felt between, all right, the world needs this. This is a good idea. But I would like to be this. And I do not think that my circumstance alone created that tension. I actually think that tension is created um, in a clash of worldviews that we sort of actively live in. Here's how you can think of it. Uh, There's a sociologist named Robert Bella who in 1985 wrote an important book called Habits of the Heart. And in it, he argued that Americans were wrestling with a huge problem, and it was called expressive individualism. Okay? We're over, what's my math, 10, 20, over 30 years later, this is only intensified. Um, He said that expressive individualism elevated individual choice and expression above any idea of a service to a common life, right, the common good, and that it was eating away at our social fabric. And then near the end of the book, he writes that, quote, to make a real difference in this world, there would have to be some reappropriation of the idea of calling, a return to a new way of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely to serve one's own advancement. So he just he sums up this idea really well that, that America has a problem. The Western world at large has a problem. And this problem is how are we going to think of work? Is work something that we need to go to to find our identity? Or is it something that we are called out of ourselves to serve something else? Okay? And um, Timothy Keller in a great book on work called Every Good Endeavor points this quote out. And it says this goes hand in hand with the idea of vocation. Vocation as a calling. The Latin word vocare meant to call. And this is the idea that the, the, the world of work is not primarily about creating yourself. It's about participating in the world of work outside of you. And this is one of the important things. You're going you're to find a balancing act in this because you are a particular creation of God in and of yourself. God has suited you to do a certain kind of work in the world. So yes, it's true. You need to think about who am I? Am I a punk rock drummer? Am I a missionary? Am I a lawyer? Am I a writer? As it turns out, they've all kind of woven together. But it requires you thinking and examining inside you, what am I made for? What am I good at? But that is, I want to warn you, that is really easily twisted in our modern moment. It is really easily twisted to make you think about, you need to find the right job for you. Um, This will put you not only on a roller coaster of emotional concern, it is also not a great way to make money. Just thinking about, what, what can I do? Um, you, you will find yourself in a couple years, likely, with a spouse, with a family, uh, with some bills. And there's a very practical sense with, actually, life is stewarding you towards answering the latter question, what does the world need me to do? What am I useful in doing? But that's not just for paying bills. That's, that's because God is working in the world and you are invited to it. So I'd encourage you to think about this idea of, calling as important as against expressive individualism. Here's one way to sum it up. Don't try to fit the world of work to you. Try to figure out who God has created to be, you to be and fit yourself in the world of work. And just as a final note on this, it's hard. It's really hard. Don't expect this to be easy. Um, right about when I turned 30 was when I was having the collapse that I told you about last night. And in part, my existential crisis was I was an English major who really loved drumming, who then went to be a missionary in China, who spent a lot of the time there writing fiction and poetry, who then decided to go to law school, and now was collapsing and realizing his failure of habits. And I will tell you, all the things that I had loved and that were meaningful to me in some way, 
it all felt like, are you familiar with the geography of a delta? It all felt like water streams just going apart and getting lost in the ocean. And I felt literally like my life was just sort of coming undone. I, I hadn't figured out, and I was 30, anything that I was actually sort of thriving or good at. It's amazing now, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in my second seminar, after the process of the Lord putting me back together. I now look at my life. Um, I was doing a drum lesson for my 8-year-old just two days ago. Um, I am a lawyer and a writer and a speaker. My English major has served me. I work on poetry and my next nonfiction book. And I'm suddenly realizing that after a long, long process of God working on me, my life is not this delta. It's not all just coming apart. It's actually more like tributaries of of things coming together. But that is not easy. And so I just want to give you a blessing of of comfort and grace and time. It is going to take you a long time to figure this out. That's fine. That's fine, but cling to the idea that God's work is good and he's calling you out of yourself and go find him in it. Um, All right, let's do... Oh, I should have told you this quote. This is just helpful to that idea. Mark Cuban, um, famous investor and the owner of the Dalek Maverick, says, I used to be passionate about being a professional NBA player until I realized I had a seven-inch vertical. He realized he didn't fit the world of the NBA, but he was good at investing. Very good. Um, all right, this balancing act of influence, I think, oh, this is perfect. I can spend about 10 minutes on this, and then we'll do Q&A. The balancing act of influence is, if you're like me, or if you just understand the idea of good work, work shapes creation. And you should, if you understand what work is, you should be thinking, my goodness, this is an amazing missional opportunity to shape the world. But then you're going to get to it, and you're realizing, my goodness, a lot harder than I thought because all that I feel is work shaping me. Here's the story of how I see this. So I was on the way home from being a missionary in China, debriefing the churches that had supported me, and I would never forget this one church that I talked to. I told them a lot of the stuff I just told you about why I was leaving China to become a lawyer, and this lady comes up to me afterwards, and she pulls me aside. She's nice, but what she said was this. She said, Justin, I know that we need more missionaries, but I am not sure that we need more lawyers. Ouch. (laughs) Funny because she was a lawyer. (laughs) The irony of it. I have, um, in a real sense, I I, I did not know what to say. And and in a real sense, I've lived the last decade in the shadow of that statement, trying to figure out how she was right and how she was wrong. Um, I think that she understood that she was trying to say, we need people sharing the gospel and shaping the world in gospel influence. But for whatever reason, she and many of us did not apprehend that that missional endeavor could and should and must be applied within the world of work. So then I'm in law school, and uh, irony of ironies, my favorite class in law school ends up being corporate tax, which is actually renowned for being way too complicated and way too boring. But I had a great professor who made the concept simple, and I think it had to do with something of why I ended up... um, continuing on my path to become a business lawyer. But I will never forget this one day in corporate tax class. I'm right at about halfway through my law school experience. And for whatever reason, Professor Doran paused the lecture and was like, I want to talk a little bit about why you guys came to law school. And he just asked the class, he was like, tell me a little bit about what brought you guys here. And so I'm thinking of my story of what brought me here. And I'm looking around, so I'm at Georgetown Law, founded by Jesuit Catholics, um, now run by, how do I put this graciously? 
um, missional secularists. They, they, they have an agenda. I mean, the, the agenda is not hidden if you're at any top law school. Like, they have a way they see the world. They want you to believe it, and they want to send you out. And this is one of the moments where I realized it. I did not feel comfortable telling everybody why I came to law school. So I'm just sitting there being quiet, and another guy um, across the room pipes up. And I knew this guy, not really well, but he was a good guy. Um, I knew him enough to know that he was about my age, mid-20s. He was gay, and he was, um, he, he, was, he, was, he was really nice. I knew that he wasn't a believer from the, our conversations. So he, he started talking. He said, you know, the reason I came to law school was because I used to work for Teaching for America in the Deep South. And what I saw in the education system there uh, horrified me. And he started talking about all the ways that he saw the harm that was coming to the children. And when he, he talked about the pain and suffering under the weight of broken educational systems, it was so significant that I started jotting down in my notebooks the things that he was saying. And I don't recall all of the atrocities, but I remember this sense of brokenness that he communicated. And he ended with this. I felt like there was nothing I could do to change any of this, and I never wanted to feel that powerless again. So I decided to go to law school. This was like a epiphany moment, because I realized that no matter how we articulated it, everybody in that room was a missionary. Everybody in that room, like me, had had some broken experience of the world, and they were like, I want to change the world. But we had vastly different ideas of what was broken with the world and what was good in the world, And I suddenly realized, like my mind came alive, and I started listening to all my professors as if they were priests. And I started looking at all of us in the classroom as if we were not just lawyers, but missionaries. And I was like, that analogy fits. We are all preaching a way of what the good life is and how to change the world. And if you don't realize that you're living in a world of missionaries, you won't get that the world of work is shaping everybody, and intentionally so. Here are two ways that I've seen this just at live in my work. First in the, uh, the, the missional power of organizations. So a couple years after that, I get to my law firm, and I sit down at my desk the first day, and on the back of my desktop are these words, collegiality, excellence, diversity, client service, and integrity. I, it's amazing that I can still remember these words, because I looked at them and I thought, what are these? These were the five big values of our firm, the way that the firm wanted us to be. They wanted us to shape us in these things. However, behind the desktop was this spreadsheet, founded about two or three months into my work at the law firm, because one of my coworkers was like, have you looked at the spreadsheet to see how you're doing? And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, the spreadsheet. I was like, what is the spreadsheet? Everybody, everybody apparently except me knew about the spreadsheet. So I finally found it. It was on our, our public sort of like data base. Everybody could go look at the spreadsheet. And what the spreadsheet was, was it was the name of all the lawyers in the firm. And next to that, it was the amount of hours they had worked that year. And right about, you know, like somewhere along the line, um, halfway down, the names went from black to red. So the people who had worked the most were at the top, the least were at the bottom, and you could tell whether you were on track to make your target or not. And I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> um, wait, where's my name? How am I doing? And so, so what was happening is the way that all big law firms work is they have these billable hour targets for their associates and partners. And it tends to be about 2,000 billable hours a year, which if you do the math and give yourself about two weeks voca- vacation, it's about 40 billable hours a week. Sounds easy until you realize that not every hour is billable. Not every hour is worth the three, four, five hundred. 500, yes, we do charge those things, to our clients. 
And so you end up maybe working 10, 12 hours a day to get six or eight billable hours. So to get, you know, your 2,000 for the year, the equation goes on and suddenly, suddenly there are all these shadow values. This spreadsheet behind, when you can open it and compare yourself to everybody, people who were told, work for integrity, work for client service, work for diversity and inclusion, work for collegiality. Look, you're not really interested in a water cooler conversation when you could be billing a few more hours. Um, you're not really interested in excellent work when you think, if I stretch this project out, I could get a couple more hours for my quota. Um, you're not really interested in integrity when you're thinking, oh, was that one or two hours that I worked yesterday on this target? It's probably two. What, the, this spreadsheet, the way that the organization had organized itself, far more powerful than any little value it pasted on the back of its desktop. It changed the way people thought and acted. And by the way, the suicide, depression, alcoholism, drug abuse, anxiety rates in major law firms, over twice the national average in almost every one of those categories. I wonder why. I wonder if it's because we're thinking about our time and our work and our advancement in a weird, competitive, number-driven way. What I want you to see there is that your organizations matter. And this is something for you to be aware of. I want to be the kind of person who makes a different law firm, right? But law firms also make me. And you gotta, when you're working under these systems, you've got to realize they're trying to change you. There's this balance of influence. Um, lastly, I want you to think about the missional power of products. Because not everybody's going to work in a service-based industry like me. Some of you, I hope, are going to go on to create amazing things. Here's the power of products. In 1980, um, there was a woman writing a book called The Second Self. And in it, she argued that computerized devices, contained, which contained human programmings, were going to act like a second mind outside of ourselves. And they were actually going to help us understand and explore ourselves. She then wrote a next book in 1995 called Life on the Screen, in which she was not just getting excited about computers and devices, but social networks and chat rooms. And she said that these virtual realms were going to change the way that we organize ourselves in communities to explore and improve ourselves, Okay. This was part of a, a hype in the 80s and the 90s where everybody in Silicon Valley was super pumped, not just about making money, but about the way the Internet was going to change the world. All right, they thought, and they would say this with a straight face and write books on it with integrity, that they thought this increased access to information and communication was going to support democracy, bring down totalitarian states like the Soviet Union. This mood was the justification for why China, um, I'm sorry, for why Google who had just gone public in 2003, decided to put their servers in China and started the first search engine there uh, from the Western world in 2005. Even though everybody's criticizing them for submitting to the, what was called the Great Chinese Firewall, that is the way that the government censors the searches, Google said, just, we just get there, get access to information, and we will change China. All right, you know the end of the story, right? Um, but I want you to note this first. If you're China or if you're Russia, do you think devices and products are neutral? No. People are trying to fundamentally change your government through their, through their products. This is not neutral. Entrepreneurs, programmers, they are thinking about how their devices change the world. That's what they're trying to do. They are missionaries. They are trying to change you. But we also know the end of the story. Fast forward. Sherry Turkle is the author of those first two books. Her last two books were called Alone Together and Reclaiming Conversation. 
They're both about the urgent danger of the way that social networks and computers and devices have actually radically changed the way we relate and view ourselves and relate to each other. And she is worried. If you haven't listened to her talks, you should go listen to Sherry Turkle's TED Talks. Uh, Google made it five years before it finally pulled its servers out of China into Hong Kong. And of course, if you read about China, the most recent news is not the openness of information, but rather um, the social credit system. If you haven't heard of this, it's an interesting big brother meets big data where the government collects data on people and actually gives you a score, a little bit like my spreadsheet of what a good citizen you are. Um, We had hoped for the triumph of free information and community. And what we've got is the world that you pass on the TVs as you walk to. Is Russian hacking our election again? Is there fake news? What we can believe? How much do we actually hate each other? How much are our ethnicities and races divided? And who's doing what... We, the power of fact has almost lost its meaning. We are living in a, and I don't mean to, this is, this is serious stuff. Like we're, we're in a, a crisis moment of how these devices, of how this world of information has affected us. And just what I want you to see is the obvious. It's not neutral. These are not just things that depend on how we use them. The programming matters. When, when, when Facebook or, or Google or news sites program the most controversial thing to rank at the top of your news feed. They're doing it because they know it wins clicks. But you know what also wins? The undermining of the kind of citizen who can be empathetic and compromising, which is the very basis of democracy. And there's actually really good books on how this is, now, this is not undoing totalitarian states like we had hoped. It's undoing democracy. This is urgent. And I'll, I'll conclude here with just saying there are missionaries abounding in Silicon Valley. Where are the Christians? Are the Christian missionaries there? And I think back to that lady and what she said. I know we need more missionaries. I'm not sure we need more lawyers. I know we need more missionaries. I agree. And we need more missional lawyers, more missional programmers, more missional professors, more mission everything. Any job, you name it. We need, we need believers doing it because it shapes the world. Let's, um, let's conclude. I just want you to take your eyes back to that picture that I started with, that lady in China. Um, she was put on a white, it was a white little van that she got into and was driven away. Um, I've got no idea what happened to her. <laughs> I've got no idea. They might have driven her around to the other side of the street and let her off and said, don't do it again. Um, she might be in a prison compound in the west of China where nobody knows her name and her family has no idea what happened to her. I don't know. I suspect that she felt like a total failure that she came to have her big moment from the countryside to the streets of Shanghai, and it lasted 60 seconds. Um, And I think of her a lot, because I think she has no idea. She changed somebody's life. That moment changed the trajectory of my whole life. She has no idea. I talk about her all over America. No one knows her name, but she is known. I think about how she thought the world of work was falling apart. But how actually in the greater story that she doesn't know, it's coming together. And, and I think about that, and I want you to think about that as you go out into the world of work. You will likely never see all of the fruit of your labor. That's fine, because you live in a bigger story of a kingdom where it's not just you. You'll see it one day, as we all will, around the big table, the supper of the Lamb. And we will rejoice in these stories. But for now... Work knowing that there is a plan, knowing there is a good God who brings it together. That is enough. When it's menial and when you're tempted to put your identity in it, put that aside 
and think about the kingdom coming. Let me pray for you, and then we can do some questions. Lord, thank you for this chance to talk about work together. I pray that you would bring fruit. Even if we do not see it, would you bring fruit? Thank you for creating the world and inviting us to work with you. We love you, and we give our lives of work to you. Amen. Thank you all for listening. Thanks.